Episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth. This is episode two in our series, The Shepherding Movement, Cult or Christian. As I mentioned in the first episode, there are many people who were seriously injured, both emotionally and spiritually, via their connection with the shepherding movement back in the 1970s and early 1980s. So much so that some families broke up literally resulting in divorce, or in some cases, perhaps separation between children and their parents. So as we continue this series on the shepherding movement today, a historical perspective, we are approaching the subject with much grace and realization that for some people, these wounds may still feel fresh, even though the events that we're covering are now more than 40 years old. And now, episode two in the shepherding movement, cult or Christian. In the first episode, we began to lay out a general overview of what exactly the charismatic renewal and the shepherding movement were back in the late 60s, 1970s, and early 1980s. At the heart of the charismatic renewal was the belief that Christians could receive what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they believed is a secondary phenomena to, that occurs after one becomes saved, and this that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is more or less signified by the believers speaking in tongues or some other physical manifestation. The shepherding movement was at the core of the charismatic renewal, and it was led by the Fort Lauderdale Five. Derek Prince, Bob Mumford, Ern Baxter, Don Basham, and Charles Simpson. And the shepherding movement was an attempt to create a type of unity between Christians of all different denominations and non-denominations based on this shared experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's Charles Simpson describing the explosion of growth that they experienced with the magazine they sent out each month, New Wine Magazine, that was distributed all over the world. And you can get an idea of how fast this charismatic renewal and shepherding movement were growing. We began to teach our influence, uh, our magazine, when we started in 1969. It went to 130,000 households internationally. And that was in a matter of just a few years. Um, but the broader charismatic movement, it jumped into the millions. Mm. Uh, At the core of the Fort Lauderdale Five's goal in their shepherding movement was this commitment they had to not creating a new denomination. They believed that this shared experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues could unify Christians at different churches, Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, and that there was no need to create a new denomination, but that everyone could stay in their same churches and be unified through speaking in tongues. Here's Charles Simpson exploring, explaining this, this idea of theirs. 
none of us wanted to be a denomination. Right. We had all had experience with denominations. Um, we wanted the, the larger body of Christ to come together. Mm -hmm. But we knew some, there had to be some uh, spiritual authority or, or discernment. Right. And so when you begin to teach discipline in a movement that's, that's growing out of disciplines right. that are moving away from uh, denominations right. and whatever discipline they have, it's, it's not a welcome um, message to a lot of people. Right. But we went from zero constituents to 100,000 in 10 years. Right. And we were overwhelmed. Right. There were a lot of people who wanted discipline. There were a lot of people who wanted Bible teaching. There were a lot of people who were, were getting into the Word. Sorry to interrupt Simpson there, but his response ended up kind of veering off into a different direction there. And I want to focus on what he did say in that clip is that one, they didn't want to start a new denomination. Two, they felt overwhelmed. Uh, they felt overwhelmed by all of the people that were being a part of the charismatic renewal and joining this shepherding movement. And so it seems from his perspective, things were happening so quickly, uh, perhaps in his mind, he, he was just, you know, trying to stay abreast of everything. and and um, didn't really know how to uh, oversee all of these people who were looking for, as he says, discipline, you know, end quote, uh, who were coming out of disciplines, meaning they were coming out of Baptist churches, Roman Catholic churches, Presbyterian churches. And, and so it, it kind of created a strange dichotomy. Here, Simpson and, and the Fort Lauderdale Five, they don't want to create a new denomination. They have people coming to them who want discipline or oversight, shepherding. Uh, let's pause for a moment and let's let's look at what what do they mean by this concept of shepherding? So the term shepherding which is at the core of <laughs> the whole uh, phenomenon of the shepherding movement, it comes from two of the main leaders, Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson. Uh, S. David Moore writes, quote, Mumford taught a series of messages entitled Sheep and Shepherds, wherein he said, you need to find a shepherd. You make a commitment to him. He makes a commitment to you. If you don't have someone to whom you can go, and say, brother, I want you to shepherd me, you better find one in God and find him soon. For Mumford and Simpson, as David Moore writes, the key to making pastoral care work was the formation of a definite one-to-one -one personal relationship between each person and a shepherd leader. Now, as we're going to continue to explore this the subject of the shepherding movement, you can see sort of where this could go wrong. If a Christian is supposed to find a shepherd and that person is that is to then make a commitment to the shepherd and the shepherd makes a commitment to him, 
And that, you know, that's not the worst thing. Uh, that's what a husband and wife do. That's what an employee does with their, their company. You make a commitment to your company and the boss and your manager makes a commitment to you. But it also opens the door for a wide array of abuses if the, the, the commitment relationship uh, becomes too controlling. Uh, let's hear Charles Simpson discuss the term shepherd and how he, he believes he came up with it. Uh, for instance, we, we had a conference of leaders. We called it an elders conference in Leesburg, Florida in 1973. We expected about 75 leaders from around Florida. Mm -hmm. Well, over 400 came. Mm. Now that gives you an idea of how this is moving. That's just in a little right. area. And then... It's like a rapids. Right. in the rapids, the river going. And then in 74, we thought, well, we'll do a, a larger regional type conference mm -hmm. in uh, Montreat, North Carolina. And by this time, I'm working with a Catholic friend mm -hmm. who's leading in the uh, community, Catholic ecumenical communities, and um, Steve Clark. And so we're planning this meeting in 74. Now we've had 400, and we want to be inclusive. And so uh, what, do you, what do you call a conference for pastors, right, missionaries, right. priests? all kinds of leaders. Mm -hmm. And he said, let's call it a shepherd's conference. Okay. I said, that's good. That's an inclusive term. Right. It's pastoral. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we went from 400 to over 2,000. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, then, you know, we had another one in 75 mm -hmm. and went to over 5,000 men. So wow. you, you're in an exploding uh, yeah. climate. So because the charismatic renewal was reaching across denominational lines, the Fort Lauderdale Five, they came to see this term shepherding as an inclusive term that would be more inviting to Baptists, Roman Catholic, Lutherans, and other Christian leaders. Baptists, for general, have a general distaste for the term priests. They would associate it with Roman Catholics and Anglicans. Uh, they don't use the term priest at a Baptist church. They almost exclusively will say pastor. And thus, a shepherd's conference, as Charles Simpson said, it was deemed to be less offensive than the term priest's conference. And they also didn't want to use, I guess, the term pastor's conference, because maybe, I don't know, maybe Catholic priests would not have liked that. I don't know, because generally with Catholic priests or Anglican priests, you can call them pastor as well. But now we come to the point of the podcast where we have to probe a bit deeper into the question. What was the controversy about the shepherding philosophy that the Fort Lauderdale Five were spreading throughout the charismatic renewal? What, what were people upset about? As David Moore writes, quote, they believed covenant relationships were one more answer to the problem of independence among charismatics. It was not a biblical option to walk alone. Believers were to be vitally connected to shepherds and fellow Christians and to learn to demonstrate commitment, loyalty, and accountability and service within the community of life. End quote. So even though most every Christian is familiar with the Great Commission 
given to us by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. In our modern vernacular here in the 21st century, we don't really tend to think of the Christian life in terms of discipleship or shepherding. More often than not, Christians use phrases such as, I'm going to church on Sunday, or I'm going to a Bible study, or I'm going to talk to the pastor. Whereas back in the 70s and early 80s, the leaders of the charismatic movement, they believed the concept of discipleship and shepherding were absolutely vital to the health of Christians. Bob Mumford believed discipleship, now here's a quote by Mumford, quote, was a very fundamental and vital ongoing relationship which brings maturity to the believer in every phase of his life. The Christian life is not simply knowledge to be learned, classes to be attended, but rather a lifestyle which is primarily imparted and passed on by sharing closely with others who know the way. Mumford goes on to say, this is the relationship that the youngest brother Timothy had with the Apostle Paul. We believe the Lord is leading us to grow up or mature some disciples so that they will be capable of discipling and bringing others to a similar degree of maturity. Now in this next part, notice the things Mumford mentions that will involve this discipling relationship. Mumford writes, as the older Christian teaches the younger, he is able to watch over his life and often to prescribe what is needed for his continued growth and maturity. These prescriptions may come in the form of books to read, tapes to listen to, teachings to sit under, and various other input into one's life. It also involves feedback, oversight concerning his lifestyle, where he goes and what he does. That's not my words, that's Mumford's. So the, the so, so according to Mumford, the shepherd is literally involved in the disciple's life so much so to the point that where the shepherd has input on where the disciple goes and what the disciple does. Let me read on here, Mumford continues. It is my conviction that discipleship should be an ongoing part of every Christian's experience. The circumstances may vary, but we want to transmit but what we want to transmit is not information or procedures, but a way of life. End quote. So now <laughs> so here you can see the early seeds that eventually led to the greater controversy. Mumford and his cohort cohorts were literally calling for a more intense type of relationship to exist between pastors, or as they call them shepherds, and the laity. And this, they were calling for something more than what perhaps the Fort Lauderdale Five had ever experienced in their own life. So in other words, the hierarchy that the five were putting in place was a situation in which each Christian was put under the authority of a local shepherd. If you got saved in the charismatic renewal, in Pittsburgh, for instance, no matter what denomination or church you were connected to, a shepherd was put over you. Say, for instance, you're a Baptist, and you've been a part of a Baptist church for a decade, and you suddenly got this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and you're speaking in tongues, and you believe that now you have the Holy Spirit, and previously you didn't. 
Well, it led to a strange reality, a very strange reality, because this Baptist has been a part of, say, his first Baptist church for, for a decade. He keeps worshiping at the Baptist church. His pastor is the pastor at the Baptist church. But suddenly, there's a new person in this Baptist life, a shepherd. The shepherd might be Roman Catholic. He might be a Presbyterian. And the shepherd might not even be an ordained pastor. He's merely someone who got, quote, baptized in the spirit as well. And now you're meeting with him every week. And you're responsible to fully open up your entire life to this guy. Your marriage, your work life, your sex life. So much so that you become more intimate with your shepherd than with the pastor of the local Baptist church that you've been a member of for more than a decade. You can see this is, leads to a strange dichotomy, a strange juxtaposition, as it were. You have this guy you call a shepherd who's shepherding you, who's more intimate with you than the pastor at the church you're going to. If you don't think that's going <laughs> to ruffle some feathers there and be a strange situation, well, there was a lot of naivety there, right? Now, historically, priests and pastors have always played an integral role in the lives of Christian laity. Prior to the age of psychological secularism, the local pastor or priest was who everyone went to for marital or family counseling or any type of issue that they wanted wise input in. Now, it's possible, in my estimation, that the Fort Lauderdale Five didn't realize they were living in an era. Like, go back to the 1970s when all this is going on. They were about 70 years removed from a time when pastors were already serving the function that the Fort Lauderdale Five were calling for people to do. You see, Secular psychology had only been around since the end of the Civil War era, the late 1800s. Prior to that, priests and pastors fulfilled the role that the Fort Lauderdale Five were saying people needed to start doing. Perhaps the Fort Lauderdale Five, if they had been more aware of what the real problem was, that there was a war between secular psychology and the church, Maybe then they would have seen they didn't need to reinvent the wheel, but they needed to merely do what Martin Luther did, reform the church, call the church back away from secular psychology and back towards Christian orthodoxy. So instead of people going to a secular psychologist for counseling, just say, hey, go to your, go to your Baptist minister, go to your uh, Anglican priest, go to your uh, Presbyterian elder for counsel, for accountability. Don't go, to, don't go to a secular psychologist to get your social life fixed or, or whatnot. Now let's, let's pause for a moment and call a spade a spade. No matter what your view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and perhaps I haven't veiled my own opinions enough, but I don't have a fond view of the that aspect of 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 uh, 20th century um uh protestantism i think i lean towards john macarthur's view on the baptism of holy spirit
But whether you believe it's a legitimate work of the Holy Spirit or not, or whether you believe it's nothing more than a bunch of hooey, one of the results of the charismatic renewal is that it did create a two-tier system. You see, the reason the Fort Lauderdale Five believed all the laity needed to be under a shepherd. I said, let's call spade a spade, right? Well, it's because they didn't believe or trust the pastors of churches if those pastors weren't speaking in tongues or baptized in the Holy Spirit. So you see, you have people becoming Christians or getting baptized in the Spirit, and and they may be a part of a local church. That should be enough, right? You trust the local church to disciple these new Christians. However, because the Charismatics had a two-tiered system, they believed the first tier was people who spoke in tongues, and the second tier, the the tier below them, were people who didn't speak in tongues. So, So that ultimately led to a view that pastors who weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit were not qualified enough to disciple people. I mean, that's really what it is in a nutshell. Perhaps the five and other charismatic leaders wouldn't have put it the way I just put it, but I think that's really what it was. The Fort Lauderdale Five being at the center of the charismatic renewal, they believed it was essential to set up shepherds over every individual Christians, and these shepherds, more often than not, had nothing to do with the local church that the Christians might be worshiping with. Other leaders of the charismatic renewal, such as Jack Hayford from Van Nuys, California, they began to become suspicious of what the Fort Lauderdale Five were doing. As David Moore writes, Hayford criticized the hasty judgment of some towards the five teachers, but also expressed concerns over the movement's failure. In his view, to thoroughly answer critics' charges, regardless of how groundless they may be, Hayford said, a self-righteously indignant stanch, which refuses to dignify the charges with a reply, only serves to fortify the stance of the accusers. In other words, people were accusing the Fort Lauderdale Five of being too controlling. People were accusing the Fort Lauderdale Five of invading established churches and causing dissension with their teachings. And when the accusations came, the Fort Lauderdale Five just didn't respond. And so that's why Hayford says, hey, if you don't respond, it only it only um, serves to, to, quote, fortify the stance of the accusers. Now, initially, Bob Mumford wanted to respond. Uh, he, as David Moore writes, Mumford wanted to go further in a statement and acknowledge more fully their own mistakes and extremes. But Charles Simpson disagreed. Simpson felt that while there had been problems resulting from their teachings, the five men had a responsibility to their committed followers who had paid a high price to be associated with them, that Simpson did not want to appease the movement's antagonists and thereby shake their followers' confidence, end quote. Now, 
disagreements between the Fort Lauderdale Five was something that occurred regularly throughout this decade of association they had. In fact, so strongly they did they disagree that at one point in the early stages of the movement, or maybe middle, I guess, in 1976 in Naples, Florida, the five of them had actually agreed to split up. And this, after they previously had made a commitment to each other to hold accountable, they, their disagreements were so intense. They were like, you know what? Let's just be done. Let's not have anything to do with each other in this movement. We're done. A month goes by. They've completely broken up. And then Simpson reaches back out to all, the other four. And he brings their little merry band back together because he says, he says it's, there's going to be a negative impact on thousands of people who've committed to us and committed to our de facto leaders in the shepherding movement. If we break up, this could have a devastating consequence to the charismatic renewal. Now, none of the five have ever written exhaustively on these various issues. Don Basham died in 1989. Derek Prince died not too many years ago. And they had the opportunity to write or talk, but they just chose not to. In fact, that's one of the reasons for this podcast. Much of this has been confined to books, essays, and a few sound bites passed along. Charles Simpson is one of the only people of the Fort Lauderdale Five to allow himself to be interviewed on this subject. And that, in, that interview with Greg Lancaster is where I've been pulling some of the sound bites of Simpson from. But even in that short interview that Simpson gives, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. As you can see in this next clip, the tenor of Simpson's attitude seems to have softened as it seems he thinks their mistakes were more or less to be expected with any endeavor men might make in anything. He doesn't seem to realize that some people and their families' lives were really hurt by over-authoritarian shepherding. Roll the tape. And... I'm sure we made mistakes. It's it's like the first airplane wasn't built uh, very well, but right. it flew. It flew, and um, and it got us where we are today. Yeah, you can't you can't improve something that doesn't exist. Right. And so, I welcome anybody who can improve on what we did. Mm -hmm. I I've tried to improve on what we did. Right. And I would encourage anybody, but most of the critics don't make disciples. Right. And when it comes down to it, that's the real question. It's not, do you like the way I made disciples, but have right. you made any disciples? Because we're commanded to. Right. Um, and I think that means we've got to at least try. So, as you can see in Simpson's response there, I appreciate his honesty. You know, he admits, hey, I'm sure we made mistakes. Uh, but you can see, see why people who I've talked to, who still seem to have bitterness towards things that occurred or they were injured emotionally or spiritually, um, uh, Simpson's response is interpreted by them as him saying more or less, hey, we made mistakes. Who doesn't make mistakes? Move on. Um, 
but I want to defend him a bit, and I'm I'm not a charismatic. Um, I, I I do think, as we've heard throughout him this this episode today, sharing, I, I think they were just overwhelmed with what was going on. They so many new people were being added to the movement. They were trying to not create a new denomination, which is kind of weird in and of itself, because really they were creating a new denomination um, based on the principles they were teaching and shepherding and speaking in tongues and whatnot. Um, and so uh, it, 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 I, I think that I think that he and the Fort Lauderdale Five were somewhat in, in a, between a rock and a hard place because perhaps if they had just admitted, hey, we are starting a new denomination, let's do that. Maybe then the parameters would have been more clearly defined. And it's almost as though their good intention of not trying to start a new denomination, it opened things up in such a way that there was so much miscommunication, so much misunderstanding, so many people who were in roles of shepherd who were probably too immature to be shepherding people. Um, And they didn't really have the oversight because they weren't the denomination to sort of make sure that what was going on was good. Here's Simpson again talking about some of the other things he was up against uh, as this movement was unfolding. There are just a lot of issues then. Mm -hmm. And to try to cover them all is uh, mentally challenging. Let me give you one. There was a teaching going around that I would call never die. And there were a number of leaders who were embracing that because we'd been filled with the Spirit, uh, certain ones called the manifested sons of God would never die. Now, again, you've got to realize that a lot of people were being born again and even being baptized in the Spirit that had no biblical background. Mm -hmm. Now, that's dangerous because uh, as Paul writes his epistles, he's addressing this problem among Gentile Christians. And so um, I ran into it in 1967, the first time I went to Fort, Fort Lauderdale. Um, I, I roomed with a, with a guy who was a Baptist preacher who had been baptized in the Spirit that was teaching never die. So uh, I just use that. So as he lays out there, people were preaching some crazy stuff, you know, hey, we're never going to die. You know, what is what does that mean? We're never going to die. Of course, we're going to die. Bible says it's appointed to all men to die. (laughs) Um, And that was just one of probably hundreds, if not thousands of, you know, different extreme teachings that shepherds that were involved in this movement that the Fort Lauderdale Five were at the center of uh, were teaching. And again, I, I know I might be sounding a little bit like a broken record here, but because they had this commitment to not creating a new denomination, it seems to have fostered a lot of 
teachers that were teaching a wide array of things that the Fort Lauderdale Five didn't agree with, but they didn't have the ability to stop. Because if, if, if you're not actually a denomination, if these people aren't actually under the Fort Lauderdale Five, well, how, how do you stop all this? And, and, and the nature of this loosey-goosey situation, it really contributed or exacerbated all of the problems that later on, uh, you know, later on as, as I met people who came out of this movement, I talked with them in the 1990s and the 2000s and the 2010s and, and people who are still holding on to bitterness and still feel hurt by things that occurred. Um, and you, you can really see, wow, you know, had they, had they actually um, defined their parameters better, maybe these things could have been avoided. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of today's episode, and we really didn't even get to... <laughs> The, the sort of the culmination of the shepherding movement, which involved uh, one of the great controversies often referred to as the shootout at the Curtis Hotel, where noted Pentecostal Pat Robertson confronts the Fort Lauderdale Five. In the annals of charismatic history, this is kind of a big deal. We also didn't get to what sort of how the movement fizzled out and the official apology. Um, it's worth noting that Don Basham, before he died, actually repented of the shepherding movement and admitted their sin and admitting that the shepherding movement was surrounded in sin. So all of that will be on our episode three and the final episode in this three-part series, The Shepherding Movement, uh, Culture, Christianity. Um, and we appreciate all of your emails. We appreciate the people who have contacted me and uh, encouraged me with this series. It's it's difficult to sort of present as open-minded and objective a history on, on events when I myself am biased. I've tried to, throughout this, the series of our podcasts, let people know I'm not a charismatic Christian in the sense that um, the specific teaching that you don't have the Holy Spirit until you are baptized and speak in tongues. We'll explore that on a later episode. I'd re- we really need to unpack you know, what exactly this charismatic teaching was, where it comes from. And, uh, and we'll you know, listen to some audio of some teachers, both charismatic and orthodox Christian teachers, to give sort of both sides to the story. Uh, but join us next time as we wrap up this series uh, in the final conclusion to the shepherding movement. Until, until then, may God bless you.